Blog Talk Radio. Designing and running memory care settings, 
and she is currently the executive director of a secure memory care assisted living residence. Um, she started managing a center in 1989 and started consulting in 1996. Um, she has you know, this has resulted in an award-winning memory care facility, and she assists other center owners. She assists families, and, you know, she assists everyone in need of help in this area. Um, her focus is really, I would call it, celebrating the human being at the center of all of this, celebrating every human being involved in the process, whether a family member or the person experiencing this. And so this is just a wonderful opportunity to bring her on this show again. She is an RN, she is an NHA, she is L, she is an LMT, um, and I am just about to bring her back on the line. Welcome back, Megan. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, I'm really delighted to have you back again, and today we will be going out live the entire time, and um, so... I know that, that people will enjoy hearing this both live and many, many people as well in the podcast, especially as they hear our two episodes together, which will you know, hopefully form a wonderful, seamless um, whole. I, I really feel that it will. There's so much to cover here. Now, I think that where we should begin today is I would like to... Let's reintroduce the topic very um, very briefly for those who are are hearing you for the first time or hearing hearing you live. Um, can you reintroduce you know there are many types of dementia, and you know alzheimer's is is something many of us are familiar with firsthand or in other ways. Um, reintroduce us once again to how you approach memory care? There's a couple questions within the question. I think we should just briefly talk a little bit about the different types of dementia and that um, they think there's about 48 different types of dementia, but there's some more common ones, and Alzheimer's at this point makes up about 60%, 55 to 60% of all Uh dementia diagnoses. So if you think of dementia as an umbrella and underneath it about 60 of those in that group have had a, an Alzheimer's diagnosis. There's also var, uh, vascular disease, cardiovascular dementia, where people may have had high blood pressure for years, uncontrolled, um, which caused some damage, some mini strokes, um, TIAs, transient ischemic attacks. And they may get treated at a certain point, um, which helps stabilize them, but there may be some damage that's ongoing that's not really visible to a clinician but might be under a CAT scan or a PET scan, uh-huh. and that also causes memory loss and confusion and a need for extra support. There's other diseases which um, Parkinson's disease and yeah. MS and lupus can have a component where 30% may be vulnerable to getting a dementia from that um, disease process. And then there's frontal temporal lobe and... Lewy body disease and some other dementias that are less known, but we're hearing more about them because clinicians are getting better at differentiating the diseases. So Alzheimer's can last 2 to 25 years. 
its average is 8 to 12. It tends to have a global effect on the brain. And so initially, it has to do with cognition and memory, executive decision-making. Short-term memory loss becomes a problem for people as they try to structure their day and manage tasks. And that's often the symptoms that people start seeing is someone forgetting what they just did or repeating themselves or um, not making a good judgment about something that before would have been very easy for that person to do. And so um, families, you know, need support and help and the person who has it with trying to get a sense of what is it, what is it going to mean to us, what's the impact, what's the length of time, how are we going to plan around it. At the end of the day, when you put people together that have a dementia diagnosis, there are many approaches that are similar for all of them. So when we are in settings where people live together, we're often doing things in um, kind of a, uh, how do I put this, like each person is absolutely unique in the way that it progresses, but there are things that we can say in general that guide us in how we work with them. And so one of the things that has shifted over the years is years ago they said uh, the victim with of Alzheimer's or the Alzheimer's victim, and they used the word victim, and then it shifted yeah, yeah. to a person with Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And now there's a lot more discussion about what is person-centered care, um, yeah. how can we help people at every stage of this disease have the best quality of life possible, How do we stay awake to what is changing and also what is enduring about that person and really try to maximize the way that we connect to them that would have made sense to them as a person and that their interests that they used to have we're still trying to um, capitalize on and we're still trying to reach in there and see if we can maintain as many connections and stimulate as many neural pathways as possible no matter where someone is in the process. And so I think if people are coming from that perspective, it's very different, and you're not dismissing the person. You're not um, thinking they're less than. You're really trying to sustain your peership with them, even though they may have things that are increasingly challenging to them. If we figure out how to change our approach and what it is we need to do to anticipate them, it can be a much smoother ride everybody. Yeah. Megan, how do you work with the fear factor that um, I, I think it can extend out? It can be in the person because often that person may have dealt with their own parent who, you know, had a situation or another relative. And then also the family, you know, there there seems to be a certain amount of distress and denial that I think could often occur in cases, you know, because because they can, you know, these things can have have, have histories, and so I'm just how how in a whole person approach do you work with that and, and help alleviate the anxiety? Um, I'm going to tell you a little story. There was a woman I worked with years ago, and I talk about her in the book. And every morning she would get up and she would slowly come to my office and she would ask to leave to go to Champaign, Illinois, and that she needed a train ticket. She needed her husband or her son to bring her suitcase and billfold. Uh And she couldn't understand why her son had her suitcase and billfold because he was a doctor. Uh And so then we would joke that we should wrap it up and give it to him as a Christmas present. 
And she just was determined that she had to leave that morning. And at the beginning, it was really, really challenging to work with her because she was very energetic. She was determined. This idea, notion was very real to her that she needed to get back to her house. She had no recollection whatsoever that she had participated in selling her home and moving yeah. closer to her sons in Colorado. And so she was someone who had raised her boys on her own. Her son uh-huh. husband had died and young in their marriage, and she was very proud of the fact that she had financially managed the situation. Yeah. And her sons had grown up, gone to college, and done all these things. So she um, was interested in finances, so we were able to then bring up that she was renting her home and we should probably give the renters at least 24-hour notice. And then she would ask, well, how much money are they making? You know, how much am I making by them renting the house? And uh-huh. it, was more, it was more than what we had written out her bill to be. And uh-huh. then she would think about it, and she would say, okay, let's go ahead and give them 24-hour notice. So this idea of letting people have their energy and their way of thinking about something and not uh-huh. trying to counter it, but to use that to then come up with something that feels even better. And so that's the person with the illness, but often the family, so in that circumstance, both sons have now developed dementia, and I cared for one of the sons. The Mm -hmm. other son brought his brother and said, my brother has Alzheimer's now, and I cared for him for a while, and now the remaining brother, the remaining son, is is having problems too. And it was it was very striking in both of those situations. The son that's remaining, who has now watched two relatives go through this, yeah. feels like he needs to really live each moment savoring it. Mm, yes. And yes. that he needs to really be aware of of gratitude and appreciating things. He's He's really pulled down into his sense of faith about, you know, made this comment to me, God knows where I am. You know, I'm not not outside of that. And so I want to just allow and sort of surrender to whatever this is going to be. I have a wonderful wife who's been helping me. I've had a really good life. I've had a wonderful career. I feel Mm -hmm. really good about things. And I just want to make sure that as I'm closing up shop, that I'm really expressing my gratitude. He said, I don't know how long that's going to last, and there'll probably be a point where I'm frustrated by me or I'm frustrating to other people, but right now that's how I am relaxing around the whole challenge. And I saw my brother really suffer with it. I saw my mother really sort of gracefully go into into the night. At the end of this whole thing, she really made a good transition in a good way. And so I'm just... I don't know how it will go for me, but I'm really trying to just have gratitude. And and other yeah. people, like the brother, was really stressed, upset, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and really actively trying to stave off anything that might be coming. And so I'm going to yeah. Uh, yeah. be very physical in my activity level. I'm going to take as many supplements as I can. I'm going to, you know, so I think people respond differently, and I think fear is such a... I mean, I love it's the name of your part of the show. <laughs> yeah, you it's know, very relevant fear. here, isn't it? <laughs> it's such a, a, a slippery kind of thing. Like you can really get pulled into it and mm-hmm. be really kind of struggling and then also have these epiphanies of things that it's helping you 
be aware of and understand about yourself and then change, you know, motivate you to do some things different. And for somebody with memory loss themselves, their compensatory abilities often are really used up by trying to figure out what am I doing, what should I be doing, what did I just do, what should I do next. They don't have a whole lot of extra energy to then be strategic about what's going on. But certainly the family members around that person who are trying to cope can at times step away, try to feel more objective about it, and really look at what can I be doing differently to calm down, to help myself calm down. Yeah. You know, something I'll say about this concept of fear having, we're almost, amazingly enough, I'm within a couple weeks now of the five-year anniversary of this show, and my own perspective on fear has evolved that through talking to people about it because I think that to a certain degree you just kind of have to say yeah I'm afraid you know whatever sometimes you know you're going to be afraid so it's not always about you know it's how you work with your fear and sometimes it's a catalyst and yes you can really do some amazing things to work your way beyond fear but I really feel it, it's this. I, I could do an entire series of shows where I took every guest just through fear. I think that topic because it's so, and we do touch on it most shows. But yes, it's there's a relationship we have with with fear, and we can really evolve in how we deal with it. Right now, some, something I appreciate that you said in the first show, and I think that this is a way of helping people to to understand things better and I may be paraphrasing a little bit here but just kind of how you you don't judge for example a baby you know when you have a baby it's at a certain point and it's able a baby is able to respond to you in certain ways and a toddler is able to respond to you in certain ways and you support that child and I loved how you applied that to later in life you know if you have a situation where some, you know, we're all going to have some kind of limitation no matter what it might be, you know, if we're blessed to live a long life or even younger we can, you know, people can have all kinds of things that can occur where we're limited and so it's it's being human. And to accept that, it's that, that acceptance, Megan, um, and, and, you know, in that love-based way of just saying, okay, you know, how it's that feeling of making the most of wherever you're at, you know, right. and, and not pushing it beyond what it can be, but just, you know, making the most of it. I, I really appreciate that, and the gratitude aspect so important, as you just mentioned. Right. I, I think what I was – I, I – the elderly couple, there was a gentleman here who passed and his wife and he were very, very much in love their entire marriage and they met in high school and here they are in their yeah. late 90s. And so it was very distressing to her that he had had dementia at the end, but he yeah. was also someone that never forgot her, always expressed how much he loved her, always told the story of how they met. So he was uh-huh. remembering that long-term memory and she was fortunate that she had, you know, she could she could be bathed in that light that he had of her still, of adoring her. And I said, you know, instead of feeling like he lived this life and it's like the pinnacle, you know, we, we're babies, we grow up, we learn how to be good citizens, we go out and work, we do our thing, and then we, you know, put our slippers by our bed and we die, that that's, you know, what a lot of people hope will happen. 
that when people get Alzheimer's, there's a tendency to judge and sort of discount the whole life of, oh, and then he got Alzheimer's. That's just so terrible. Yes. And yes. so I said, I said to her, instead of saying that, just flatten the line out. And so it's not this pinnacle. It's a long line of many different epochs in your life and that you've developed and been almost different people. Like when you think of yourself yes. as that toddler or that school child or the adolescent or the young person in their 20s, it's almost different people. It's you. Yes. There's a constant threat of you. But the experiences are so vastly different. And what you're drawing on and what you understand and what you're learning and with a small child, we tend to not make them self-conscious. We let them be and have experiences, yeah. and we know that those experiences are going to build into who they are later, but they may not be able to reflect on those experiences. They may not be able to say to you, I don't remember what went on when I was four. Uh-huh. You know, some people can, but a majority of childhood memories tend to just kind of go into the sea of you, That's right. and you can't That's necessarily right. pull them out. And so I compare that also to the end of life, that if people have had this long, continuous line of different adventures, drawing on different aspects of themselves, and now they're sort of closing up shop, they're getting ready to leave and make their transition, that I wish we were gentler about judging and and allowing that unselfconsciousness and to allow people to be just where they are and working on whatever it is, and not worrying so much about that, but really what's the interaction, how are we managing, what are, you know, like really what's the quality of that time? Because there are a lot of people who have dementia that don't necessarily go the whole route. They don't have it for 25 years. They may have it for five or eight years. And it's almost like that polar opposite of the beginning of their life, that they're shedding the things and leaving it behind as they make their transition and really getting back to kind of a pure essence. Yes. So I just think it's an important thing to think about instead oh, of everything degrading and being terrible. Yes, it's profoundly powerful. I mean, I just can't imagine how many people that could change their perspectives because I think that um, truthfully um, I I believe people get depressed and anxious. I mean, so many things, when, and it's it, if you can just recast the way you think about this, and this is applicable to everything in life. What you're saying is really broadly applicable to anything you might be experiencing. It's a kind of acceptance of where you are, and and it's a it's a really powerful thing. Um, you know, sometimes I think if I was just reading a book, I'm trying to think who it was that wrote it. He was. It was not about. Alzheimer's or dementia, but it was someone writing about their life. It was a memoir, and basically the author, whose name now escapes me, it's a fairly popular author, um, said something like, well, you know, it kills us both. He had this really dark view of how his loved one had passed and how this person was just gone, you know, gone. And, And that does seem to be a perspective sometimes where people will say, well, you know, this person isn't even here anymore, as if they're they're just gone. You know, they've passed over, they've transitioned, even though they're still here. Whereas, to me, your view is just incredibly loving to acknowledge this person really is still here. You know, they're just not here in the way that maybe they were here 
you know, 20 years ago or whatever, you know, it's, it's, but to, right. it's so sad to think of someone as just gone. I mean, it makes it a very challenging experience. And it was for this author who, again, I, maybe I'll put in the comments who it was, cause it's a fairly, I know it was a bestseller. Anyway, um, it's a common notion and, and you help people with this. Right. I really believe that we always have whole spirits, no matter what, experience we're having and we may not always be able to be aware and in contact with that aspect of ourselves but it doesn't mean it's not there and functioning and so it's really with that in mind also being able to look at what are the adventures what are the storylines what are the things that happen to us And again, you can reflect, like say you had a difficult childhood and you've done a lot of work around healing that. And there may be things that come up as echoes for you that remind you of that time, but you really know you're in a different place. And you have had experiences which give you that information and say, I really healed that. That's not me anymore. That isn't my, and I don't have to react from that place. Like people have known that through the life they lead and the work they're doing, that there was something constant in them that was functioning all the time, even if they're under great duress. And so what my sense is, is when people have Alzheimer's, their brain is connected to this world. It's a part of the matter of the body. It's a facilitating part of us. It helps us function. And we, in a materialistic sense, tend to feel it's the seat of who we are. So our personality, our ego, however one puts that, the sense of self is absolutely tied to the brain for a lot of people. And what I believe is we're bigger and wider and broader than our brain. And our brain, when it's being damaged, it absolutely affects how we function, but it does not define all of us and that we can't forget there is more to us than our brain. So when I'm working with people as they're declining, I feel sometimes other aspects of them and other ways that they shine through and other ways that they continue to connect and other ways that they manage in ways no one expected that they could. I've had too many examples of that. And so I really feel there are things working in tandem. There are things still moving along and and that I really am here to help what is in the physical. So I always want to do a good job in terms of best practices for care and having all the information we need and what's going on with research and how can we make people comfortable, what's going on with pain and, you know, all those different things that are sound of the earth, (laughs) you know, science, you know, really applying those things. What's good nutrition? Making sure people have good nutrition. Making sure people are hydrated. But at the same time, I'm considering all the time, what is the person's connection to this process? What are they doing with this? Where is this information going for them? What are they learning from this on a soul level? And how long do they want to be involved in this as a project? And so I'm always, you know, like in me, mutually aware of that, just like I'm trying to bring them the best that nursing can bring or the best that a healthcare setting can bring. I'm also aware there's more of them there than what I can always connect with. And I don't want to forget that or ignore that. Yes. I have kind of a random question that came to me because it feels 
you know, it seems like, um, and this may be in your book, and I'm I'm forgetting, um, is when you talk about, you know, connecting to the earth, for example, it seems that beauty is just so incredibly important. And I'll tell you very briefly an experience I had that's unrelated to Alzheimer's, but I was in the hospital with a loved one. I've talked about this on many shows where I was supporting someone in the hospital. And even though that person couldn't get outside, you know, we were not in a situation, surely. In fact, none of us could really for very long. Um, there was on the television these beautiful pictures of nature, and actually this person actually kind of surprised me because that's what they picked was to watch this. That was, I guess it's on in most hospitals. Plus we had this view out the window, and I just can't tell you, Megan, how much I realized. I mean, that beauty, even just on the television, it helped us all, I mean, in incredible ways. And so it just made it easier. And we were very fortunate to have a, a view of the woods, of the beautiful Pacific Northwest, you know, a mountain just filled wow. with trees out the window. So the question is that, you know, I think people, we they get concerned that, oh, you know, our, our loved one's going to be shut away, you know, and won't be able to see this or that or, you know, it, it's just... How do you bring beauty to the people in memory care settings? And I, I really would like to know. Um, we have a lot of different ways of doing that. Like in the building, in terms of the interiors, what's the artwork? What's the uh-huh. um, milieu? How's the furniture? What are the things that people are, um, how do they gather in areas and how does that get facilitated? Um, what does the silverware look like? What does the china look like? Um, you know, how can you elevate those things so that people feel it's gracious? And even though someone's having a hard time and getting up from the table and leaving repeatedly, you know, how do you not disrupt the whole dining room and make sure that people feel it's a nice place to be and a nice place to eat? We have music appreciation activities where we go into music history, talk about different conductors, play the music. We have Um, music and art therapists that come in and work with the residents um, directly and they have experiences of going to museums and um, Uh we have outdoor areas that are always accessible Um, when the weather's nice I mean you don't you know you don't want people going out in a snowstorm necessarily but right (laughs) you're in Colorado I know that (laughs) yeah all of that's unlocked so that people can just freely go in and outdoors uh-huh. And that's that happens after breakfast, and then at, at, in the evening after dinner, they go and check and make sure everybody's in for the night, and then they'll they'll close the courtyards up, but people can go and look at the stars and, and uh-huh. be outside oh, wow. if they want to. Oh, wow, that's if really people, nice. Yeah, yeah, when they get up and go outside, they totally can go do that. Wow, and, that's pretty and cool. So I think, yeah, I think um, families take people to, to, for drives um, on their own. We take people mm-hmm. up to the mountains go out to lakes and, you know, we even go to the airport and watch all the planes go off. And, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a really important thing that you bring up. People, what is that in your energy that goes, oh, you know, that kind of expands when you see those things and that it's, there's also like a universal thread. What are the things that make us all human? together and humor is one of them um when everyone can laugh at something equally there is no one old or young no one ill or well there's just humor living there 
And so I think in any care setting, you want to make sure that you have opportunities for whimsy and spontaneity and, you know, making sure that there are things that just lighten the space and create a sense of warmth and uh-huh. are not always the same as much as we need a certain level of routine to help people feel secure and know what's next, you know. Yeah. Um, so it's, it, it, I think it's a really important point you bring up. I think it's really important to healing at any level and that there's yeah. an appreciation, you know, even like soft sweaters and blankets as you're getting into uh-huh. later stages uh-huh. to be able to be cozy is a really important thing. So, yeah, I, yeah it's a wonderful thing to think yeah. about. Yeah, and when you say that, wanting to be cozy is, you know, everybody probably has, I mean, it's almost impossible to go through life without having seen some situation that was less than ideal. Um, and we've all experienced that probably at different. I can remember when I was quite young, a relative of 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 someone I was related to was not in the best of situations, you know. And so you see that, and so you get in your head, oh my God, you know, this clinical setting that feels cold and actually often can be cold, you know, if it's not yeah. being properly. And so I think if we can move from that notion. To and if we as a society, you know, really, because this is what you're fostering, is move to the notion. Yeah, we don't want those settings to be out, even you know, for anybody, and to improve the support that exists. And it can be as simple as warmth. You know, having a warm blanket and you know the the real support that people need. Mm-hmm. And sitting out. You know, like having a blanket on and sitting outside on a beautiful fall day and, and yeah. hearing the leaves rustle and looking at the way the light hits the trees. It's yeah. really important for all of us. I uh, One of the things with people with Alzheimer's is that as they get into later stages, they get much more sensitive to environmental things such as the full moon, storm fronts, um, yeah. the sun and there, there are folks in the building that will follow the sun around the building and they'll be sitting in areas where the sun oh. is coming in <laughs> and they're resting there and they follow uh-huh. it they get up when it moves and they go to another place and so it's very uh-huh. important for them to have natural light wow that's very cool light. yeah I could yeah. see that I could definitely just the feeling of sitting in the sun I think if I learned anything in in the I've been pretty blessed not to have to be in the hospital with with loved ones too much. Um, but I think that if I learned anything from my recent experience last summer, it's just how the simple things like that matter. I mean, I could see that, and and how you can find a connection in the simplest of ways. I tell you, we had at night this, and I stayed with this person at night as long as I could, um, they would put stars up on this TV thing where you were just traveling gently through the stars. And I swear, I could, I need that at home. Right, <laughs> I mean, I would right. go to sleep. I would just drift off to sleep every night. And it was the simplest thing. I mean, there was restful music on, too, you know. And, and so yeah. it, it takes people like you. Somebody knew. Whoever designed that into that particular hospital setting, regular hospital knew obviously this is what our patients need there is a 
you know, an expansive thinker. And maybe 25 years ago, you wouldn't have seen anything like that. I don't remember seeing that. You know, when I used to visit, my dad would be in the hospital various times in his life. And gosh, there was, it was very clinical. I mean, there was nothing like that that I remember. And nowadays, it seems people are becoming more attuned, even to the simplest things in the atmosphere that helps. Yeah, there's a there's a movement, there's a long history about reform and trying to improve environments for elders and like even the Grey Panthers during the civil rights movement was trying to respond to institutionalized seniors who it seemed as if their rights were completely stripped by yeah. the convenience of the facility and pushing 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 that that wasn't right. And then you have um, something called the Plain Tree Movement, which was founded by a woman who stayed in the hospital, and she was ill, and she was woken up all through the night by people doing different procedures with her, and she woke in the morning to a window that looked out on a wall, and there were bars on her window, and the room was Uh, gray, and uh she said, how am I supposed to heal in this kind of environment? And so she started a whole movement to help patients have more autonomy, Um, it's grown, it's called the Plain Tree Movement, and then you have in long-term care something called the Eden Alternative, where William Thomas um, wrote and designed and supported environments where you have animals and children visiting, Uh you've got plants Uh growing, and you have seniors feeling connected to what's my purpose instead of feeling disenfranchised, what are the things that we can do to help people living in those environments to feel part of the decisions that are made and the schedule that is created and can I sleep in if I want to? Can I just have an egg yeah. for breakfast and nothing else? And so there's yeah. all this this effort and, and actually people with dementia helped that because they're so consistently themselves. And so when I was early in my nursing career, half my staff would disappear at some point during the evening chasing someone who had left the building. And uh-huh. they would be going and looking for people who wanted to walk uh-huh. back to Wyoming and thought that they could. And yep. so the whole thing of how do we create environments for people that are safer, but they yeah. still feel they can be doing things they'd like to do, they can walk where they want to walk, but it's still a little bit more contained. And then what's the quality of life on those on those programs? And, I, you know, I've seen a lot of bad programs. And yeah. I've seen some really good ones. And yeah. it's an envelope that we keep needing to push. And we need to have families involved. We need to have advocates involved. We, you know, we need to work together on what are the things that we can do that make this better. Whatever the circumstances, whatever standard the unit has, it can always be better. And how can we do that? And so if you're, you know, I tell people I'd much rather be looking for lost laundry and have somebody make a mistake with the meds. What's the canary in the coal mine that's telling me something's not right or somebody's not managing a detail and that what's the education we need to come through, what's the support we need to come through, where are the systems that we have that make things more smooth and that it's not about necessarily a bad person or a bad caregiver, it's what's the support for that person. So I just think people with dementia really highlight some of those challenges because... They're vulnerable, they can't speak for themselves often later in the disease, and it's up to us to bring the best to them. And they're not going to ask for it, but they're going to have certain behaviors that demand certain things from us, and we have to put our detective hat on and figure out what it is. So it can be a really creative process, but it's challenging. 
you prompted a question here. You know, I swear, I I, I, I so want to get to the stages here, and we're going to run out of time again. I could do ten shows with you, Megan. I think <laughs> it's such a it's such a topic. But there's a question I can't help but ask. You said how, you know, in the later stages, they may not be able to make certain choices. How much do you involve patients when they're in the earlier stages? And maybe this is a good entry point to at least do our best to walk through the stages. Um, in fact, this is an excellent entry point. How mm-hmm. how much can you help people make some decisions early on about later? You know, if there are some decisions that may need to be made. Like I know nowadays people make all sorts of decisions about, you know, catastrophic care. We went through this with a family member. My, I don't mind saying my dad, when he passed away, he had some very specific orders on record, and they were followed to the letter. And yeah. more and more people are doing this. Um, so how about when it replies to memory care? Right. So, so ideally we all want to do it before we have any problems. Yeah. So that would be the first thing. And, and that sometimes elders, um, become a little suspicious when the kids are trying to push them around or take over things. 50% of people with Alzheimer's in the early stage have no insight whatsoever. Yeah. 50% do have insight. They get something's wrong but they still may be worried about how do I pass the reins? I don't know if I want to. I don't know if this is the right person. Can I trust them as I get worse? All of those things need to be sorted out, and there there are people who don't do that, and they, they miss the window, and then someone's having to step in suddenly because there's a crisis. Yeah. It's, you know, it's part of everyone's story, you know, how they yeah. operate. It's going to be part of how they operate also as things change. So ideally we can talk about how do I want care to look like, where do I want it to happen, who do I want to have take care of me, how do I want my resources used, if I have certain problems, how do I want those addressed. And the Alzheimer's associations all over the country have early stage support groups. So people who are just getting diagnosed can go and get some help, meet uh-huh. with other people, and be able to have some of these conversations in a supported and guided way, which is yeah. great. So yeah. if the people that are a little bit more open to that. We also have, I suggest to some family members, say that you need to work on your power of attorney and your medical power of attorney, and you want to do it as a group so that the family is all crisscrossed. So Uh that if this person dies suddenly or this person becomes ill, that we've already taken care of it, and Joe's going to be this one, I'm going to be for this one, you know, I'll be the second one for this one. Because we've had Uh elders who did it with each other, and then wouldn't do it with their children. And then yeah. the person who remained yeah. alive was the demented one, and then they couldn't make the judgment or the decision right. or sign paperwork. So the family had to go for guardianship, even though the, the kids were appropriate, they were trying to do the right thing, but because the elders yeah. never went to the next generation for support. And then we have people who have no one. They don't have a right. family. So what right. are they supposed to do? Yeah, so what the, do the they ice, do? Yeah. <laughs> so there there are some friends who sometimes will uh-huh. pull together and become the power of attorney for that person or hire a professional uh-huh. who is in charge of finances or whatever and interacts with this group of friends, almost like a board. You know, that yeah. if they're making financial decisions, they talk to these two people and then they decide together what's going to happen yeah. and that puts some yeah. safety in there for the person. So so there are some folks that are able to look ahead and say, you know what, if I'm at a point where I'm having trouble swallowing, 
I don't want you to insert a tube. Right. You know, and be able right. to tell. If I hit my head, I fall a number of times and I hit my head, I don't want you doing surgery to relieve the pressure. I want you to let me go. If I get aspiration pneumonia because I've choked on food and swallowed some of it, I don't want you giving me antibiotics. So there are people that say, there are people who don't say and have always been a certain way, and the family members yeah. respect that. So they yeah. said, they would, you know, Dad would want us to do everything, or Dad would want us not to do everything. And they just sort of right. honor what that is. But what what makes me sad sometimes is sometimes a parent will pick all three children, and because they don't want to cause a problem, instead of the second child that they had the better relationship with and felt more simpatico in terms of their concepts of life, they yeah. say all the children shall share power of attorney, and then we end up with these terrible situations where they're fighting with right. each other and they're estranging right. each other. And if the parent would have just made the decision to say, I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm going to go with the kid that I think represents me the best, yeah. then then this would all be quiet, you know. So, And I think Alzheimer's disease, I had a family say, <laughs> should only happen to the strongest of families. Because it's so challenging. I mean, I think we could say that about all diseases, but I think yes, with, yes. with Alzheimer's it's harder. So let's get into the stages a little bit while we have a bit of time. Um, yeah. How I talk about the stages is really looking at a developmental theory going forward. So what we develop as a infant, the beginning of our lives, and then an example would be you're trapped by gravity, you see your arms and your hands moving, but you don't understand they're connected to you. And then you start realizing you're making that move. And a child, an infant, will go from a palmer grass where they reach with their whole hand to differentiating to a finer movement, which is the pincer grass. And then they get themselves up out of gravity. Uh, they start walking, start running, they move freely. And then we have childhood learning, adolescent learning, adult learning. When you get Alzheimer's, the very last things you learned in life are the first things you lose. So bill paying, safely driving, living independent, executive decision making, and short-term memory loss is one of the first things that we see challenged for people. They're very active in the moment. They're participating in what's going on but they can't store it. So as soon as they move on to the next thing, what in us is still functioning, which is the area of the hippocampus in the brain, and it takes that moment-to-moment -moment experience it and stores it, turns it over into a long-term file. And yeah. so that's the little juncture that's missing. And so the issue is for a lot of people who are older who have an early stage of Alzheimer's, they remember early life experiences very clearly. They can tap into long-term memory extremely yeah. accurately, but they can't necessarily remember if they just took their meds or if they ate this morning or if they showered or who called them. And so we see that starting to erode, and that's the loss of adult learning. And so the things that you think about as an adult that make you functioning in the world is also your social skills, your rational mind, being able to look at something objectively and make decisions about it, um, your engagement with certain interests that you've always had, how you connect to other people and sort of the personality that you express, your mood state, 
as your healthy self, what is that at its best? And so what happens with Alzheimer's is as people move into the second stage, which is the loss of adolescent learning, we see some heightened emotions, frustrations. There's some disinhibition where someone would normally have more tact or would have sort of held back, screened a comment. They're just kind of letting the comments fly. And there's a sense of concern about what am I supposed to be doing and who am I supposed to be doing it with and, and repetitive questions. And sometimes there's complaint about interference. Why do you... I've taken a bath. I don't know what you're talking about. And the person is remembering on a long-term memory basis, I showered every morning for the last 30 years. I don't know what you're talking about. But you, as the person coming and seeing them, knows that the towel hasn't been wet, the shower floor is not wet, the shampoo is not being used, and this person hasn't bathed for six months. You know, when you're visiting, you're like, oh, my goodness. And so then you have this, when you think about an adolescent, and you think about how adolescents are together, like the thing of a, a bunch of girls going to a mall and going uh-huh. shopping and how do they act and what do they do. I have some elders who are like that where where I work, where they want to stick together. Um, their opinions are kind of universal. Like if one person doesn't like the lunch, then all the whole table sends the lunch back. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and there's this kind of yeah. emotional, like, incontinence. It's really hard for them to control their emotions because they can't draw on the rational and the cognitive abilities as much. So that uh-huh. stage is, is very, it's kind of difficult from an emotional point of view for a lot of yeah. caregivers because they feel yeah. like they're doing their best, they're trying their hardest, and this yeah. person is complaining about too much interference or too much neglect or they don't remember yeah. that they just helped them and they're calling them on the phone and say, you never come to visit, you know, yeah. and they came twice that day. And so that can yeah. be really, really challenging um, to to the caregiver. And then when we get into um, the third stage, it's the loss of childhood learning and it's about how things function. So when you and I get dressed in the morning, we understand okay, I need to get out of my pajamas or I need to start putting put my clothes on in a certain way. Right. What's backwards? What's upside down? Um, what is the item? And so in this stage, people start losing, um, it's called agnosia, where you don't know what an item is. You don't recognize uh-huh. it as what it is. So I have a person who will come out in the morning with a depend on their head uh-huh. because they think because it they must don't be know. a <clears throat> They yeah. Don't know. No, I I could see that. Sure. And yeah. so they start hesitating. People, it's hard for them to take initiative. And so when they're approaching something and they're not quite sure how it's how it should be done or what should happen with it, so that's when we often start seeing problems with incontinence, uh-huh. uh, with not knowing where the bathroom is, not knowing urgency in themselves, and being able to feel it. Um, yeah. They love music. They love sensory kinds of things. They love nonverbal activities and children and animals and Uh anything that just is like we can be together, but we don't have to be so worried about what the meaning of life is. Like we're just enjoying it. Wow. (laughs) And and those pursuits. (laughs) And so there are elders that really love just sitting next to someone and holding their hand and watching what's going on around them or walking a lot 
Um, there's some pacing and wandering that can start happening more in a more progressed way in this stage, and uh-huh. and really appreciate being able to move and just move, 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 move. We put pedometers on some people, and we get you know 10, 12 miles a day. Wow. So so that's the loss of childhood learning, and people really struggle with ADL, so activities of daily living, dressing, bathing, uh-huh. grooming, eating, that really becomes a challenge. And at this point, sometimes that's when families are wanting to have more assistance or wanting to yeah. move to a setting where they can get that assistance. And then the last stage in the, in the book that's related to um, the progression uh, before you really get to the final phase of the disease is the loss of infant learning. And so just as I said, that child who learned how to palmer grasp and then pincer, you have folks that really forget how to use utensils, how to button their shirt, and physically can't do it. And they can still do gross motor movement. They can still bowl. They can dance. They can Uh um, give you a great hug, but they really struggle. They can't tie their shoes anymore. And we see balance problems and falling Issues with immobility affecting people at that stage, they tend to be completely incontinent. They have a hard time sort of managing all those ADLs are now totally done by people who are caring for them. And so that stage is the loss of infant learning. And, And again, I like to think about people trying to cocoon, let go of things, not have to really address all the mundane things that we have to in our regular lives. Yeah. And in that in that silence or peacefulness, where are they going and what are they doing? What are they addressing? And I have had elders talk a lot and also non-verbally express things or show what they're feeling or meaning, um, where sometimes, for example, being able to reconnect to family members that have passed and they're making comments about having talked to their mother or seen yeah. their mom or... Yeah. I, I always love talking to my father or a husband that died a long time ago they're talking about. It. And so I just feel like sometimes this group is really surrounded by all the people who have always loved them. Yeah. And that mm-hmm. we're still administering to the person who's here, like I call them tethered angels. We're still yes. working with oh, the person yes. that has Beautiful. some connection to the physical but they're really working in a much bigger and different way elsewhere, and they're getting ready to go. And so if we can do a really good job creating that space um, with acknowledgement and sort of honoring the physical vessel the best we can, then I think then I think we've, we've done what we've needed to and the angels can take over. Yeah. I am a huge believer, Megan, that the angels are real. And I, I've told this story before on my show that um, it's a little bit different situation but my dad had a really close towards the end he had a really close call and he was saying mom pops which is what he used to call his dad i mean i wasn't there i heard about it and um i believe they were there i i totally believe they were there yeah i i i know they were there (laughs) i just know it and you know people can question and be skeptical that's fine but i think it's a beautiful and to think that when you're in that last, those later stages, that you could be surrounded by those who love you even longer. I mean, it's almost like being halfway across the veil, as I would put it. You know, you're you're here, and yet, I mean, you're with the angels. I mean, how cool is that, really? I mean, if you could celebrate the gratitude aspect of that, like a baby maybe with the angels, too. We don't know what babies see. 
they they could be surrounded all the time. So so anyway, I find that very very beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So I I yeah. Does that was that helpful that we got through yes. a little bit of the stages? It was very helpful, and you know we are already in the last five minutes and. You know, I, I finally feel, although this is such, I mean, I know this is an important topic for so many people. I mean, I don't think there's a family out there that hasn't been impacted in some way or will be. You know, I mean, it's just one of those, it's it's a such a topic that's important. And, you know, let me tell you, Megan, I am very thankful for you. <laughs> Thank you for coming yeah. to the show and sharing from your heart and your book and all that you've done. I mean... What an angel on earth, really, to be doing so many wonderful things with your wisdom and your heart. So so thank you, Megan, so thank much. You. Thank you for having me. It's really been delightful to talk with you, and I appreciate the the time that you took with me. It's well, really you know what? We've been on the front page of Blog Talk Radio this whole time, and I've been watching it, and I am so thankful for that because I know they intervene a little bit in determining what shows, and then how they bounce around up there seems to have to do with, you know, who's tuning in. But I don't know how it works exactly. All I know is I'm thankful that we've been out there because I know that, that this this topic is meant to touch a great many people, and I am thankful that people can learn from you, Megan, and um, and that includes people managing centers because you are creating an atmosphere that will only take us forward in the future. We are moving into the right domain with all of this. So so thank you again. Yeah, thank you. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. Bye. And I didn't get a chance while she was on the line to mention where you can find out. It's on the show page, but depending on where you're seeing this show, sometimes you can click it, some, a lot of times you can't. And I have to say I'm thankful that this show is showing up in more directories and things where in different forms. So however you're finding this podcast, I want you to know that MeganCarnarius.com is a place that you can go to learn more about the various resources. Also, you won't be able to see this in all the directories um, because it's a very long link. Um, But the previous show, if you're in some settings, you can click on the Listen to the First Program in the Series here. Also, keep an eye on FrontierBeyondFear.com because I do very much intend, especially for a show like this, which has, you know, really two parts, although I have to say both parts were, were a whole. I mean, you could listen to either one of these and, and learn so much from both. Um, I will have a Megan Carnarius page, and I am determined to have it out there, even though I know um, it's a process getting that website the way I want it to be. But step by step, we get things done. So I would like to have that out there so that you'll be able to find both shows easily. So anyway, thank you everyone for being here today. <laughs> next week, I'm not sure what the schedule is going to be next week. We may be taking a little break. There may be one show, but um, the schedule is getting a little adjusted for the week ahead. And then it picks up again as we head towards the actual anniversary of the show, which I believe is October 26th, if I remember exactly how I spontaneously sh- started this show one day. And and um, I just it's such a joy to be here doing this work, and I also do want to remind you that this is a listener-supported show. One more note I almost forgot to mention is that I do want to say how much um, I am supported 
of Baptista, Bob, and Dean Schrock, who are doing a retreat on the Oregon coast coming up next weekend, October 17th through 18th, Manifesting from the Heart. And so go to deanschrock.com to learn about that. They are going to be doing some wonderful work out there um, in a very beautiful setting. So thank you again, everyone, and I look forward to seeing you here. If we have a slower schedule, I wouldn't be at all surprised if I have a show somewhere in there next week, but catch up. Perfect opportunity. No matter when you're listening, go look in that archive. There are just nuggets of gold, and you can go all the way back and find them. Um, even four or five years ago, Just, I am so thankful for the guests that have come to this show. Every time I near the anniversary, I, that's what I feel the most. I have personally learned from so many people coming on this show, and you know, I feel that you are learning, too, the community around. And, you know, we learn from each other. I feel the guests, we, we're all interacting. And we're all growing together. And it's a wonderful thing. So um, thank you so much. And if you do feel led to support this work, um, I, I very much welcome that. And you can do that at FrontierBeyondFear.com. Take care, then. See you next time.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.